I'm going to read one passage, and I'm going to pray, and ask that the Lord will bless our time. This comes from 3 John, verse 2. And I love this verse. It says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And I love the picture there, the connection between our health and our soul. So let me pray, and ask that the Lord would use this time. Uh, for that, for that desire, let's pray. Oh, Father, I come before you now and thank you for this weekend and thank you for all that you've been teaching us throughout the week. Ask you, Lord, that you'll bless this time. I thank you for Wayne and for Zuleta, and ask you, Lord, that that you would speak through them now. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would help your people uh, in, in this area of anxiety and depression when it comes to medication. Give us wisdom in how to do this. Uh, right. So I pray all this now in your name, Jesus. We give it to you. Amen. All right, we're going to do a couple different things. Zuleta is going to speak first, and she's going to talk about nutrition, and that's one of her areas of expertise. And then she's got to get down to the parenting seminar. So she's going to go first, and then I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Wayne Marlowe as he shares a little more. So Zuleta, you come in. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm so grateful and uh, blessed to be with you today. Uh, I'm a licensed mental health counselor. Uh, if you read in my bio, I'm also a survivor. I experienced depression two times in my life in a major way, and I would have to say in a debilitating way. Um, one was as an unbeliever before I came to Christ. And then I came to know Christ, and I thought that was the answer until I hit my mid-20s and fell into another crisis and realized that I needed, um, I needed more help. And so um, I'm here to talk to you today about nutrition because I'm passionate about it because I really feel like it's a core pillar of um, what you want to look at when dealing with depression. I know for me, it was one of the things that I had to be very, as uh, Dr. Marlowe and I were just discussing, intentional about in order to make, uh, begin to see some shifts and some changes um, in my emotional and my mental and my spiritual health. So um, I'm passionate about it. Um, I'm actually so passionate about it that I had to go study it. So I spent um, some time studying at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition in New York City, where I received uh, a certificate of, uh, for my uh, certification in holistic health counseling. So I spent about two to three years also working with patients um, in my husband's office. He's a chiropractor working with um, patients on their nutrition. People would come to me with everything from thyroid issues to um, diabetes to uh, weight issues to emotional issues. And really, I have a belief that all of those things um, are intricately tied together, that you really can't separate out because as a person, those uh, where we are both mind, we're spirit, we're body, and anytime one of those things are affected, the rest is affected too, right? So, um, so I'm here today to kind of talk to you and give you some key points. Um, in, uh, in getting my certification, uh, I studied over 86 different dietary theories. That's a lot of different dietary theories. And I will tell you that people have uh, all different, well, they will tell you all different kinds of things about nutrition, um, about what right nutrition is, about what it looks like. And what I want to tell you is that it's really different for every person. 
because every person is uniquely made, and I really believe this because it's scripturally true. We're uniquely made in, um, in, God's, in God's image and his design, but we each come from, uh, we each have a different template in place. We each have, um, we come from a different genetic background. Um, we grew up in a, a different environment, different part of the world. We each grew up with our own particular style of eating, depending on the, on the family that we came, came from. So every person's nutrition it should be um, uniquely suited and designed um, to suit you and your lifestyle. And a lot, an athlete obviously is going to eat differently than somebody who has a more, um, a, you know, a sit-down office uh, job during the week. So, um, so I think nutrition is as unique and, and um, as unique as the people um, who need the nutrition. So um, Socrates said, let food be thy medicine. And I really believe that food um, can be your medicine. But I will also want to say on the clinical side of that, that, and I'm sure Dr. Marla will talk more about this, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, that as a le also a licensed mental health counselor, that there does come a point where if you're dealing with chronic, debilitating depression, um, if you are dealing with uh, also a person who's struggling with suicidal thoughts, that um, at, that at that point, the interest is not uh, just in um, making sure that they have a healthy lifestyle, it's in saving that person's life. And if you wanna, and, and sometimes medication is necessary for that. So I do wanna um, go ahead and, and preface that, that that's, uh, some, sometimes that's what we need to do. So um, I, what I wanna spend some time doing I'm actually going to hit, uh, like I said, I'm going to hit some, some, key, some key things that are true um, across, uh, across the different dietary theories. So these things are true no matter what, whether you decide, whether you come from um, a, a nutritional philosophy that uh, you think, you know, I, I'd like to be a vegetarian, um, who's heard of paleo, that paleo is a big thing now. Um, and you like to make sure you eat your bacon and your, get your bacon and eggs in the morning. Um, whether you're a juicer, do we have any juicers in here? Anybody who likes to juice? Um, vegetarians, it can be really confusing, but there are some key things that are true across the board. And I wanna kinda go, um, I wanna kinda go over, theirs, uh, over those things now. So there are three things that you need to know that will help you kind of pinpoint who, who you are in terms of nutrition and what it is that you need. Um, there's something called metabolic types, and you can take a test for this. I'm sure you could find someone in your area who could give you a test for this, but a really easy way of um, knowing what your metabolic type is is, um, is by paying attention to what you're already, what already makes you feel good. So there's three metabolic types. The first type is a carb type. This is a person who does well on a lighter, fresher diet. So this person, if there was a buffet, they might walk up to the buffet and they probably would be eating in the fruits, vegetables, and carbohydrate ca categories. This is a person who, that doesn't slow them down. It actually makes them feel light and they feel satiated on that kind of a diet. So you probably already, just in the little bit that I've told you, know whether you're a carb type. The second type, obviously, maybe obviously to you, would be a protein type. And this is a person who, if they ate the diet that I just described to you, they would have to eat a lot of it in order to feel satiated, and they might never feel satiated eating a lighter diet. If they ate fruits, vegetables, and carbohydrates, they would not feel satiated, 
In fact, probably their blood sugar would be all over the place and they would have a really hard time um, feeling full. So if you're a protein type, you're going to feel more satiated and, and, and um, satisfied if you are, um, you know, if you're sticking to um, meats, proteins, um, vegetables, and fruits. There's also a mixed type, and so a mixed type is a combination of the, of the two, and a mixed type will have a little bit of everything on their plate, and that's what it takes to make them feel satiated. If they were a protein type, then they would have a little too, then they would probably feel too full, and they would, uh, would slow them down. If they were um, eating on the other side and they were eating the lighter diet, then probably they would feel um, they would feel not full, and they need to eat more than they really need to eat. So uh, a, a, a mixed metabolic type is going to have a combination on their plate. They'll have a little bit of protein, they'll have a little bit of the carbs, and they'll probably have a little bit of the fruits and vegetables on their plate in order to feel satiated. So if you want to think about those in those terms, um, you don't need to take a test for it. You need to pay somebody to know that. You kind of probably have enough experience with your body and what you like to eat to know, call out whether you're protein type, a mixed type, or whether you're um, a carb type. So just for the fun of it, um, based on what I've told you already, how many protein types do we have in the room? Can you raise your hand if you know your protein type already? Raise it high so everyone can see. So we have a protein type, so you kind of already know. That's good to know. And if you are a carb type and you know that, can you raise your hand? Feel better on um, more carbs. And if you are a mixed type, raise your hand. So we have, so as you can see, um, the nutrition is diverse, and, uh, and so, you, so no two people are going to eat exactly the same based on first their metabolic type, then their lifestyle. So um, just so that you know, that those are, those are good things to, to think about when you're, when you're eating. Um, basic food rules, some basic things um, I think that will help you um, no matter what your diet is. Um, the first one that I like to say, and I think it's really good for us as believers, is that you want to concentrate on eating God food versus man food. So um, uh, food that God made versus food that uh, man made. And basically what we're talking about when you go to the grocery store is kind of staying away from or moving away from anything that was made in a box. So if you ever go to the grocery store and start and look at what in, is in your cart or look at what in, is in the grocery cart of others around you, you probably will find that a lot of the food that we eat is processed, it's already processed. One way that you can avoid that is by going around the outside of the shopping, um, the grocery store aisle. So what's around the outside of the grocery store aisle? Produce. What else is around the outside? Beer. Beer? <laughs> yeah. It was good for the monks, it's good for us, you know? So, what else is around the outside? Dairy. What else? Meat. Anything else? So, if you stay around the outside, you're safe. It doesn't mean you never go down the inside of the aisles, but you have to be more discerning when you go down the inside of the aisles. But if you stay around the outside, you stick to the, fruit, uh, to the foods that you have to cook then um, you probably will be um, safer. Um, the other thing that you want to do when you do go down the aisles is you want to look, um, a lot of people when they look at their nu nutrition labels, they're looking at the, they're actually looking at the tables. You know the place where it says, where it says calories, fat, 
you know, and it kind of gives you a, a dialogue of, of, you know, what nutrition is. You actually would be safer never looking at that table and looking instead at what's in the ingredients. So what I would caution you to begin doing and practicing this, and just notice, um, look at the ingredients of the, of the food that you're reading and look and see how many chemicals you're taking in, how many toxins you're taking in. I have a whole other talk that I do on toxins and neurotoxins and how that affects people, but if I, had to, um, if I had to name it, I would probably say that a lot of people experience anxiety and depression not as a sole result, but I think this would be for sure a factor, the amount of poison and chemicals that we ingest in our body. I don't even think that we really know unless you're looking at the ingredients and paying attention and weeding out the food with chemicals. So here's a, here's a fair guideline in, to picking out foods that are in boxes because kind of in our society you can't get away from it. You kind of have to um, get some food with boxes. But when you do get a food in a box, what you're looking for is you're looking for um, the ingredients list and you're looking to see that the best ingredients are at the beginning of the ingredients list and not the end. And the reason I say this is because the way that they put, pack the ingredients is they put the ingredients in order of what's most to what's the least. So one of the things that you'll begin to notice as you're looking at your ingredients list is that often the first ingredient in your food, in your processed food, is some form of sugar. And one of the ways that you can eliminate sugar, and I'm going to talk about eliminating sugar in a little bit, is actually just going through your ingredients list and eliminating, and eliminating the foods that have sugar at the beginning. If you have sugar in a processed food, you'd prefer it to be at the end so that you're getting the least amount of sugar in your, in your uh, processed food as possible. So start reading your ingredients list and start getting a little bit pickier. Maybe pick out uh, foods uh, with the lists and the definitions that you actually recognize that sound like food. I was doing a talk one day and I had a guy come up to me and he was kind of being a, a wise guy, you know, and he said, um, hey, I have this list of complicated, you know, his complicated names like, you know, mono, triglyceride, you know, whatever the thing was. So he had these lists of things and he wanted to go through with me what each of those things are, you know, what, what they were. And I said to him, I don't even know if it's necessary for us to go through this because when I see a name like that, I just, I, why would I eat it? Like, why would I put it in my body? You just don't want to eat it. So anyway, just go through, start reading those things and maybe eliminate those things from, from your diet. The other thing that you're looking for is you're looking for ingredients lists that are simple. So you're looking for things with lists of maybe three to five ingredients. Um, the, what you'll find is that the more ingredients that they have in them, um, the more complicated the processing process was to make it, and the further away you get from God food, and the further you move towards man food. So we're working to stay towards God food. Um, another um, tip that I would like to give you today, you can go um, Google, Google's great, you can Google anything. So Google the Dirty Dozen. Who here has heard of the Dirty Dozen? You heard of the Dirty Dozen? We have a couple people who have heard of the Dirty Dozen. So this is a really great way, if you're not sure what produce to get organic or not organic, um, this is a really great way for you to um, figure out which foods you'd like to have um, uh, reduce your pesticide and your chemical load by going to the Dirty Dozen. What the Dirty Dozen is, is it's a list of foods that, um, that are the high, have the highest pesticide and chemical contact, co or content. 
So um, that's something that you can Google very easily. You just print the list out, and then you, um, and then you basically, uh, that's your organic food list. So if you're going to go organic, make sure that you buy the, um, the food in the dirty dozen. And then the other foods you can buy conventionally speaking. So for example, um, and I will say this too, that uh, foods with a thicker skin will have, um, have a less pesticide lo uh, load than foods with a thinner skin because the pesticide can't penetrate the thicker skin. So for example, avocados are, have a less pesticide load than apples, for example. So if you had to buy one organic, you would pick apple. So look at the Dirty Dozen and pick your organic foods from the list of Dirty Dozen or, um, or conventionally based food. Another one um, that I think is probably pretty popular in Orlando now, because we have a lot of people uh, riding the healthy food train in Orlando, and I'm not sure what the, what the climate is here for healthy food, so I may be going way out on a limb when I say this. Um, but one really easy thing to do to change your diet is to actually change the meats that you eat. And what I mean by that is search, uh, you can search for uh, grass-fed beef instead of conventionally grown beef. How many people know that grass-fed beef has the same omega-3, 6, 9 ratio as wild-caught salmon? Did you know that? We got some people in here who do. So the rest of us, that's probably news, but you can actually get um, the same omega-3, 6, 9 healthy fat ratio um, in grass-fed beef that you can get in, um, in, in wild-caught salmon. So changing out your... Um, I'm, not gonna, I'm actually going to give you some resources to go back and find the, uh, you know, why you want to change your meats, but I'm just going to tell you right now that you can do that, and it would be a great switch for your health to do that, to switch to grass-fed meat from um, conventionally farmed meat. Um, the next thing that I would say is reduce the sugar. Um, if you'd like to know more about that, there's a great book that was written in the 80s called The Sugar Blues. So write that down. It's called The Sugar Blues. So if you'd like to know more about... Um, sugar and why, how it affects us and why it affects us, um, that's a great resource. Uh, I would point you towards that. Um, I really think that in, in some form or fashion, we're addicted to sugar, and uh, we don't know that until we start to eliminate it from our diet. So if you'd like to find out more information about that, um, look at the book, Sugar Blues. Um, the other thing is that you can swap out um, bad fats for healthy fats. And they don't have them yet. I don't think they passed these out when you first, but they are going to because they're working on the copies of it. But what I did here was I, I printed out a nutrition plan for you all that we used with our patients um, who were in health crisis. It's called our advanced nutrition plan. And before I pass this out, I, I kind of want to, I guess I kind of want to um, make a statement about this. After working with a lot of people on their personal nutrition and also working myself, uh, you know, uh, with my family, I'm really not a big fan of eliminating any food group um, in, out of your diet because I think it kind of causes a pendulum swing that is, is too hard to come back out of. So I'm not a big fan of eliminating, but I am a big fan of paying attention to what works best for you. Uh, but in this nutrition plan talks about eliminating some things, and the reason it does that is because we, we would have patients come who would be in health crisis and they would be on the verge of um, having to go in for heart surgery and they would need, need help um, quickly, a remedy quickly. So I think this plan is a great plan um, if you follow it to the letter for 
Um, anyone who's in a health emergency, I would say do this. But part of the reason I'm handing this to you is not that you follow the plan to the, to the T, but I really think it gives um, some great food lists here. And one of the food lists are the God Fat Choices. So if you look on the second page, if you have it, if you don't, you'll get it before you leave. But it has a bunch of God fat choices. Simply put, adding these things into your diet will make a huge um, difference in your nutrition. So begin to switch out the fats that you normally have. If you use margarine, you can eliminate that and you can add butter, which is a healthy God fat, believe it or not, into your diet. If I had more time, I'd go into the reasons why, but butter is better than margarine. Um, the oils that they use in margarine are rancid, basically, and they cause toxicity in your body, so you don't want to use those things. For example, that's one example. So go through the God fats there and see. Um, and there are other, um, there's other lists in here. And what I would want to say to you is this rule, that instead of eliminating things from your diet, that you would begin instead to add in or swap out more healthy things. And eventually you get a flavor and a taste for the things um, that, are, that are healthier. Um, I like to add to that uh, a great rule to follow in moderation always when it comes to nutrition is, uh, I've heard people say 90-10 or 80-20, something like that. So you get into a routine with your health and nutrition. Um, Monday through Friday, you do really well, and then you have a couple of, you know, what we, maybe what you want to term cheat meals, you know, um, uh, dur over the weekend. Um, but that, you know, 90% of the time or 80% of the time that you're following um, a pretty healthy uh, diet plan and 20, 10 to 20% of the time that you're, you know, that you're, you're doing, uh, you're having fun with your food. You want to enjoy life, you want to enjoy your food, so make sure that you're also enjoy the foods that you eat. Um, I wanted to add um, just one more resource for you before I go. Um, there's a great movie out uh, called Food, Inc. Have you all heard the movie Food, Food, Inc.? Some of you have seen it. So if you've seen that movie, um, then you'll probably recognize some of the principles that I'm talking about today. But if you would like um, to understand where your food comes from, comes from, how it affects you, um, why you need to make different food choices, then uh, you want to watch the movie Food, Inc. And the last thing that I want to leave you with is this diet and eating habits quiz right here. Super easy to take. You just go through and you say yes or no. You add up your points and at the end, um, it gives you an assessment on how you're doing with your diet. And, if you, and it just kind of maybe starts the dialogue and points out some things so that if you need some help or you need some uh, improvement in your nutrition, in your diet, um, you'll, you'll figure it out real quick here. So I am moving quickly today because I have another seminar that I have to go um, be a part of, but I wanted to thank you guys so much for having, giving me a chance to um, spend some time with you this morning, and I'll be around today, so if you have any other questions, feel free to stop me and ask me. It was good to be with you. Thanks, Eloise. Thank you. All right. All right, Dr. Marlowe, come up here. Uh, this is Wayne Marlowe. Most of you know him. Uh, Wayne is an elder here, but he's also a family doc. As, as uh, Robert mentioned a couple nights ago, when he had his breakdown, we called Wayne uh, early one morning. Uh, Robert got in to see him and, and got a lot of, of good, good, godly care 
And it turned out when we were there that, that afternoon, Wayne said that he sees Christians often for depression and anxiety, but there's always an element of shame that, that Christians don't think that they should struggle with this. So, Wayne, I want to just kind of start with that mindset of what have you seen are issues related that, that people don't want to go to the doctor for issues of depression and anxiety, and how, to, how do you kind of combat that? So, it, it, I'm on, I guess. Um, the, uh, the issue of, of Christians having depression, anxiety, or, or for that matter, any other um, illness of any kind, physical, it, is, it often comes up that, that people will come in and, and they're Christians and they'll say, well, I, you know, I, don't, I, I can't really struggle with that and, um, because Christ is all sufficient. And so, you know, my response to that is, is um, in fact, that is true. Christ is all-sufficient, we, but we live in a broken world. And when, when Adam fell and sin entered the world, it really entered every part of our world. So these bodies are not perfected yet. They will be. It's going to be good. We look forward to that glorious time. But, but, but now we're still living in the imperfection of, of the world as it is now. So... The physical ailments that the non-Christians deal with, we deal with them too. And that would include depression and anxiety. So just trying to help people understand that um, the already but not yet, you know, Christ has already, it's already been done, that all that's going to be taken care of, but not until the other side of glory, that we're going to see the full manifestation of everything that Christ did for us in our bodies. So there's no shame in being ill no, we'd all be in trouble. That's I mean, you know, the, the truth is we all get ill from time to time from all kinds of different things. And so um, there's no shame in that. I think that the challenge is that, that sometimes we've created a culture in the church where it's, you're not allowed to be ill or not allowed to deal with some of these things. And I think that's, that's a challenge for us as a church to be able to open that door and say, it's okay to be broken and be a Christian and be here. Uh, all right, medically speaking, separate, differentiate for us the difference between depression and anxiety. So um, depression and anxiety, first off, I want to say I'm not an expert, guys. I'm a family doctor who's just been doing this a long time, and, and it happens that, to be a lot of what seminar. I do. I know, sorry. Um, but it happens to be a lot of what I do, but, but um, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure what the term expert means. But um, So depression and anxiety, it's... it's, it's um, uh, if you look to the medical literature, you would, you would see that it's really kind of two, two sides of the same coin. In other words, the, um, from, a, from a purely medical standpoint, the neurotransmitters that, that are involved and that the medications address really are the same neurotransmitters for anxiety and depression. And so if you look at depression and anxiety in the general population across the board, they coexist probably 70% of the time. In other words, 70% of the people who have depression have some level of anxiety that's, that's clinical. And 70% of the people who have anxiety as their presenting complaint are gonna have some level of depression as well. And there's probably only 30% out there who really have purely anxiety or purely depression. Fortunately, and, and from a purely medical standpoint, the medications that we use 
address the same neurotransmitters and actually will typically help both problems in terms of symptoms and functionality. Uh, some, uh, for example, somebody comes to see me, my office, they're struggling with something. As a pastor, I really don't feel comfortable telling them that they need medicine. I feel very comfortable telling them they need to go to see their doctor. So I've often sent folks to you. How would someone this afternoon know I need now to go see a doctor or if they're wrestling with that? What, what, when do they know before they really get in trouble that it's time that, boy, I really do need some medical help? Um, I think it comes down to, in terms of, of medication, it comes down to functionality. When we look at, 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 at depression and all the different symptoms associated with that, all of those, to some extent, can be normal in our everyday life. Um, we can get sad over different issues. We can lose interest in a hobby for a period of time. Um, you know, so all of these things can happen to us, but when is it a problem? And I think, I think the, 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 the defining point, and I'll comment about grief here in a minute, is functionality. So, so when your level of distress, whatever it is, your level of symptoms reach the point where you're having trouble functioning in the workplace, you're having trouble functioning in your relationships at home, then that's an issue because you can't function. You, you can't do what you need to do um, we all struggle with anxiety to some extent. It's part of life. It's part of reality. Um, we all struggle, struggle with. We all have sadness from time to time. But when it reaches the point where we can't function, we can't, we can't do what we need to do to live, that's an issue. And I think that's a time where, where medication can be very helpful. Now, medication does not address some of these other issues that Sammy and Robert have talked about. And I think that's really important. But getting people from a non-functional state back to functioning medication usually can be helpful. And the other thing I would add to that, that there's, there's some folks that are going to need to be on medication long term. Sammy alluded to that last night, I guess. Um, for whatever reason, as they deal with the other issues in their life, they still have some depression or they still have some anxiety that's limiting or debilitating. And medication may be appropriate for those people long term. From my perspective, that's no different from having high blood pressure. You've done the things, you've eaten healthy, you've lost weight, you've exercised, you still have high blood pressure. You take medication to treat that. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Uh, we've talked about this before, and, and this is connected. One of the things that you told us that, uh, and I'll, I'll keep using Robert as an example since, since he put himself out there already. But, uh, no, you didn't. Uh, it's too late. But you said if, if, if he doesn't get some sleep, then everything else is just going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. Can you speak a little bit about the significance medically for our bodies that, of, of sleep, and if we're struggling there, which, what yeah. helps? So it's interesting. There's more and more research from a purely medical perspective coming out about sleep and the importance of sleep. There are a number of experts now who would say sleep's more important than exercise. In terms of our long-term health, sleep is really, really important to us. Um, 
So if, if you, the, the, what happens when we sleep is that is one of the times when our body is most active in terms of fighting infection, our immune systems. So like when you're ill, a lot of times you want to sleep a lot. Guess why? Because that's when your body's immune system is most active fighting that infection. Um, repair, if you're an exerciser and you go out and run real hard and you come back and you're sore, sleep is when a lot of the repair work for those damaged muscles and tendons takes place. So sleep is important for all those physical aspects. Well, guess what? It's important for our mental health as well. We need sleep. Anxiety, depression, all of that will be worse if you're not getting sleep. One of the um, symptoms of depression is a sleep disturbance, either too much or too little. And so sometimes you need medication to help you sleep. You may not need it long term, but you may need it for a season. And so sleep is really a critical aspect of good health. And the more we learn about it, the more we realize it's really important. People who suffer from sleep apnea, basically what's happening is they're not getting restorative sleep. They're not getting into the deep levels of sleep where your body's refreshing and restoring itself. Well, those people are at a higher risk of sudden death. So there's, there's a whole, whole um, bunch of literature out there about sleep, but the more we learn about it, the more we realize it's important. So medically treating sleep, talk to us there. If it's that important. Yeah, so, so I mean, you need to do, you can, you can go online, you can print off information about good sleep hygiene. And I think that's an important part of it, no question. And you ought to be trying to do good sleep hygiene. And I won't talk a lot about that. You can find out about it. But there's a lot of folks. You do everything right. You're doing your good sleep hygiene. You still don't sleep well. You're still, you know, you go to bed. Maybe you go to sleep easily. You wake up at 3 in the morning and you're up. You're just, you can't shut the brain off. You can't go back to sleep. And you're doing that night after night. So guess what? You're not getting enough restorative sleep. I am fine with using medication to help you sleep. Again, not looking at that as a long-term need in most cases. It could be. You could have disordered sleep that's like having chronic depression or high blood pressure. It's something that needs to be taken care of, but I wouldn't say that's the norm. I would say oftentimes it's something that can be treated short-term and you seem to get better from it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to open this up for questions in just a minute. I've got a couple more things and then uh, anything else that you want to share. Something that you've mentioned uh, is, is that there are different scales of depression, different ranges. So to be depressed, there, there, there's more severe forms and less severe forms. So speak a little bit about that and then appropriate treatments accordingly. So Robert and Sammy have done, a, I think, a, just an outstanding job of, of helping to paint a picture for you from the inside of really pretty severe depression and, and I think, and, and, and anxiety. Um, and so that is absolutely real and, and those, are, 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 those are really pretty critical situations and um, need significant intervention in a fairly short period of time. 
But depression's really kind of a continuum. And, and so if you, if you look at that and you say, well, okay, here's normal. I don't know how you define normal exactly, but here's normal and here's really severely depressed. There's this continuum in between it. I would say most of the people that I see are somewhere in here. They really aren't way over here. Um, but these folks would benefit from help as well. And that help could be in the form of medication. It could be in the form of counseling. It could be in the form of both. And so there's a lot of different terms for these in-betweens. There's dysthymia, there's cyclothymia, there's bipolar depression, type 1, type 2. I mean, there, you know, there's all kinds of different names for this. But, but in fact, it's kind of a continuum of sorts. And these people will benefit from help. And maybe medication... And, and, and depression can masquerade. I mean, we have to do our due diligence to rule out some other medical illnesses that could cause depression. But um, so, so we do our due diligence in terms of evaluating that. But um, so, yeah, you, you can see depression that um, if you ask the person, well, do you think you're depressed? And in fact, they may say, no, I'm not really depressed. But when you begin to question them more specifically about their symptoms, it really paints a picture of a mild depression. And oftentimes those people will respond very, very well to medication or to some counseling or both. Okay. So in terms of treatment, uh, you would go either direction there with, with counseling or medication, regardless of the scale. Yeah, it depends on the severity of the symptoms and, and how dysfunctional they are. Okay. You know, I mean, if, if they're really dysfunctional, the counseling may take a little time to be effective, and if they're a college student, you know, they, they may need to get back to class and, and pass their courses and be able to study, and medication may help that pretty quickly. Let me make one more comment about depression in general. When I went through training many, many years ago, we really didn't talk about childhood depression or depression in young people. And... Um, you know, what I would say to you is that just because somebody's young, it really has mm. nothing to do with whether or not they could be depressed. And I'm talking about kids. Mm. You know, I regularly, and my partners regularly treat a lot of teenagers who are struggling with depression. It's very common, not unheard of, and it can have disastrous consequences if it's not dealt with and cared for. Same thing college students as well, obviously, but. Um, all right. Anything you want to share before we open it up for questions? You good? No. Go ahead. All right. Deb? One thing, one thing I have not heard mentioned is the role of psychiatry. Thank you. And the place of psychiatry in all of this. Yeah. So let, let, me, let me comment on that. I think... What's the role of psychiatry in treating depression? Um, so... I would love to have more psychiatrists because <laughs> I would, you know, I, I kind of kicking and screaming ended up doing what I do in terms of taking care of a lot of, of these issues. But, um, but, but the, the short answer is there aren't enough. They're, they're in very short supply. To get in to see a psychiatrist, typically there's long waiting list. And, and so there just aren't enough. I think there's clearly a place for psychiatry. I think there are some some very, very severe depressions that don't respond easily to medications and or counseling, and there's a place for, believe it or not, um, 
electric therapy, I forget what it's called now, but, but there's a place for that. It's not common, but, but there's a place for it. So, ECT, thank you. So there's, there's a place for, for psychiatry, no question. I wish there were more than not. Thank you, Dan. All right. Yes, sir, in the back. So first question is the trial and error. Um, you know, I was reading on the American Psychiatry Association website the other night, just kind of boning up on some of this, but in fact, that's true. We, we typically do use medications on a trial and error basis, and that's because we can't always predict who's gonna to respond to what medication. I wish the science was to that point, but it's not. Same thing's true for high blood pressure. I mean, we, we will typically trial a person with high blood pressure on a medication they may or may not respond very well. Whereas I may give them a very low dose of this medication and their blood pressure bottoms out. It's not expected. The science is not clear enough on that. And, and, and um, actually the, the, Psych the American Psychiatry Association states that very clearly. It is trial and error. Now we do know that there are certain medications that have a high percentage of being helpful. And we usually start with that class that's this SSRIs and, and so, but sometimes we need additional or different medications. And, and I mentioned bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder is different. And, and so the medications we use for bipolar disorder typically fall in a different class. And sometimes, in fact, someone with bipolar depression will get worse when you treat them with an SSRI. That's true. Yes, sir. What I would, I think what I would say to that, and I'm not answering this so much from... Um, What's the role of uh, addiction, or how can addiction be possible in the process of medication of anxiety? Yeah. Um, I, I, I would say that, that addiction can coexist with anxiety and or depression. Whether or not there's a real cause and effect relationship, I'm going to say, I don't know the answer to that, because I don't. Um, I suspect that there is a significant role of anxiety in addiction um, because oftentimes people will have some benefit from anxiolytic medications, but doesn't fix the issue. There's typically a lot more involved when you're talking about addiction. Very complex. You know, the desire that we have to see Substance abuse curbed in our culture, obviously we all want to see that, but there is no simple answer to that. It's very complex. Yes. So can so, taking medication lead to suicidal thoughts? Is that true? 
Um, it, there, there's warnings, especially in the SSRIs, for use in adolescents. And, and there's, there's uh, warnings by the FDA saying, you know, you need to be aware that, that um, there may be an increased risk of suicide with these medications. There's a lot of discussion about that. In fact, um, anybody who suffers from depression is at an increased risk of suicide. And the question is, do the medications increase that risk further? There's some suggestion that they may, um, but these are the most effective medications that we have for dealing with severe depression right now in our current pharmacological armamentarium. So, um, should we not use them? I think we should use them carefully, cautiously, with significant discussion and warning about it, and close follow-up. But I would not say that we shouldn't use them. Fred. Can you sum that up? Yeah, what Fred, Fred said. I'd be happy to give you the mic. <laughs> what he said was that, that there, there was a, a study that, that kind of was the foundation of that concern that maybe SSRIs uh, increase the risk of suicide. And what he, what he said was that there, there has been demonstration that there's an increase in suicidal ideation and thought, but not in attempt or completion. And, but unfortunately, when that study came out and the FDA came out and said, gosh, you really need to be careful giving these SSRIs to, to young people, an awful lot of family physicians and pediatricians, well, I'm not using those anymore. Then guess what happened to the suicide rate? It went up after we stopped using those drugs. So I, I stand by my decision to use them with concern and warning and discussion with family and the individual. All right, we have time for one more, and then we'll wrap up. Sandra. Yeah, Sandra's question, because I'd mentioned to her that I was going to talk a little bit about grief and depression, because there's, there's you know, how do you differentiate? How do you know what's grief and what's clinical depression. And I think, I think that's a very fair question. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes, sometimes they coexist. Sometimes you can have grief and then you can have depression overlaying that and it can be very difficult to sort that out. But, you know, just some general guidelines in terms of, of grief versus depression. So, so when somebody's in the midst of grief, you've lost a loved one, there's been a, you, you grieve if you've lost your job. <laughs> got a divorce. I mean, all those things, there's some kind of grief involved. The grief, though, tends to occur, tends to come in kind of waves. It, it kind of washes over you. Maybe you, you walk into your 
mother's room and you smell her smell and you, the, it washes over you and you begin to weep and, and, and it's like, so there's waves of grief and then in, in between you may be okay and you may actually have positive memories of your mom or whoever it is. Um, it doesn't tend to be continuous, unrelenting, just nonstop. And depression tends to be much more continuous, unrelenting, and nonstop. Um, typically, in grief, your self-esteem is preserved. There's not this sense of, of, of worthlessness, of, of, of um, I'm no good, or, or nobody loves me. That's not so much there in grief, but in depression, it tends to be a major part of, uh, part of depression. Typically, somebody in grief, this is not always true, but typically, they're still functional. They, they, can, they may take a week off or two weeks, but they can go back to work. They can function. They may break down in tears at some point, but they get them back together and continue their work. Severe depression, typically, you're not functioning. You just really can't for various reasons. And then um, grief is usually, well, it's event-driven. Something has brought the grief on. And what we already know about depression is, yes, sometimes it's situational, brought on by something. Oftentimes, nothing you can put your finger on. Most frustrating people in the world who come in depressed, and they say, Doc, I don't have any reason to be depressed. Life's going good. And it, that's a hallmark of depression. Senator, did you have another question? Anything that we've left out? Are you sure? Okay. Um, thank you. We good? Anything else yeah. on, you want to share? No, I got a whole bunch more. That's what's happening. Okay. <laughs> Let me pray and thank the Lord. And thank you for coming. Oh, Father, give, give your church wisdom uh, in this area with medication. Help us. Lord, thank you for your gift of technology. Thank you for the gift of science. And we give you praise for that. And I, I pray that you would give wisdom to your church. Uh, we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.